This podcast is offered by Black Mountain Zen on the web at blackmountainzen.org. Our public offerings are made possible by the kind donations from people like you. Let me give you a characterization of how I will approach the six parameters. Um, the, the way I'm going to approach them is that these are six characteristics uh, that, that we're all capable of and, and that um, but we're also capable of forgetting them or not including them in our life, uh, either as an influence in our meditation or our internal life or our relational behaviors um, and this is a way to draw us into a more attentive and hopefully skillful and compassionate involvement in all three of those um, some, sometimes the paramitas you know the, the word of itself it, it can be translated as perfections or the other way it can be translated as having gone beyond or transcended. Uh, but they can, it can also, I would say, legitimately be related to as a, um, as I was just saying, as, as a way to enhance our capacity for awareness in our everyday life, in, in, in the workings of how we are and who we are and how we behave. Um, you, you know, I, I know, I saw that many of you took that last, uh, which was the last set of talks we did online. And, and, and in that, what I was trying to do was, was trying to create what's a formulation which comes from early Buddhism. In, in, Sanskrit, it's Shila Samadhi Prajna. And Shila can be translated, it, it, it's often translated as discipline, but I would suggest to you this way of thinking about it and relating to it. It's, it's the yoga of getting in touch with our body of getting in touch with uh, the mental processes and the thinking that we are and getting in touch with the emotional and psychological aspect of our being. And, and that this is something that uh, as persons who intend to be conscious intend to live a life that's aware rather than just reactive and habitual this yoga of getting in touch is an essential ingredient and a helpful ingredient and then samadhi we can think of as continuous contact that there are ways to relate to the body, breath, to, to the mental activities, to the ways we conceptualize existence, and, and to the emotions and psychology. There's ways to get in, in contact with them and to sustain that contact. And as we sustain that contact, it's sort of like good news and bad news. The things that you had psychologically <laughs> find ways to cope with <laughs> through avoidance, through suppression, <laughs> um, they, they, they become more evident. And, but with that contact, we, we cultivate um, insight. We, we start to see how our own mind works. We start to see our own habits of thinking and feeling and behaving. And 
And not only do we start to see the particularities of ourselves, we start to see what it is to be human. You know? it, it, it becomes deeply personal. And at the same time, it starts to become impersonal. And for almost all of us, the deeply personal part is a challenge. And as we become more attentive to it and more insightful about it, it becomes a teaching. We, we start to see that this is the particularities of me and this is an example of the human condition. And, and as we see that, um, hopefully it invites us to live according to our own insights. And we also start to see that this is a related existence. No? That, it's, that insights are not a private event in a way. The fundamental insights into our being, into the human condition, are a, a universal truth. No? So we have sila, samadhi, and prajna, usually called wisdom. And that's the backdrop, you know. And in a way, without ever saying those words out loud, that's, that's what I was trying to promote in the last series of talks. And, um, and as we work with them, they, they make us more capable of being intentional. You know? Our reactiveness, our, our habitual ways of being will simply run our life define our life, define how we behave. If we don't bring some intention to them and, and let them sort of not be so contracted and, and, and so defined by what we might say, the stressors of our life, the ways in which our stressors distress us and, and leave us unsettled. Yeah. That there's a steadying influence that comes up with insight. And the six paramitas can be thought of as a way to engage that steadying influence. That, that the six dimensions that it has, and, and we can engage them in our life. We can engage them internally, we can engage them in relationship to others, and we can engage them just in, in general. And each of them has a kind of a, a distinct modality to it. And, and as you can see, that when we look at it in principle, when we look at it in the abstract, it's in the realm of ideas. And, and very much the paramis happen in the realm of engagement. Yeah. And, and I will send you some readings, but not so much to, in our time together, to discuss those readings. Oh, well, where in the, in the development of Buddhist thought do these teachings first come up? Or how were they taught about as it shifts from you know, early Buddhism to the Mahayana? I, I wasn't intending to engage those other than how they help us see how to engage them in the here and now. So, so let's do this. Uh, let's sit for a while. And, and as you sit, um, I would offer you this suggestion. You know, you may think of, uh, you know, usually we think of sitting, there's a very purposeful, precise thing that we need to do. 
But what if you sat in a way where you thought, okay, there are stressors in my life and they tend to have an influence of inviting distress and an inv invitation to unsettledness. What if I was to sit in a way that just invited into my being a, a release of distress, that, that invited into my being a release of that unsettledness. And so can you go through, and I, I will describe it a little, okay, can you just engage the body and the breath, the mental states, the mental content, the emotions. So it's not so much you're forcing something on yourself. It's in a way, you're just inviting yourself very gently to just start to open and be present in a simple way. It's starting with the body. It's, uh, it's such a powerful thing to do. And just inviting your body to be settled in your chair or on your cushion. Inviting your body to be upright, balanced. Let your shoulders relax. Let your chest open. And then just to let your body breathe. It's always a very simple core to be. The body is breathing. The heart is beating. The ears are hearing. The sensation of touch is active. Then we reach in here. Letting all light be open to.
and in an allowing way to just notice the state of mind that's present. More to experience it and acknowledge it than to get busy changing it. Breathing it in and letting it go with the exhale. And when thoughts happen, rather than getting caught up in the content, just let them be an activity as best you can. Just breathe them in the same way you breathe in the air. Let them go as you breathe out.
If you notice that you've caught up in thinking, just pause. Nothing's wrong. This is another moment to be aware of, to begin again. Notice the breath. Experience the breath in the body.
paying attention in a way that expresses a deep caring for your own life. Okay, thank you. You can take your time as you transition back into a, a more interactive state. Just notice the consequence of sitting. Maybe there's something you'd like to carry forth as we go forward. I think everybody's muted. Shall I unmute them? <laughs> um, sure. Okay. Um, so I've invited or allowing people to unmute themselves. Okay. If people would. So what, what I'd like to do now is um, talk a little about, about the paramita of generosity. And to be quite particular about it, the, the, the Sanskrit word is, is dana, which is actually a verb. Which, which I think speaks of this uh, paramita quite well, that it's an activity rather than a philosophy, you know, that it's something we do rather than some, uh, some notion that we uh, uphold. Uh, but of course, in our consciousness, our ideas and our behaviors are intertwined. But maybe it says something that we, we realize, literally, in, in contrast to knowing, that we realize generosity through activity rather than through our uh, intellectual processes. It, and, and so I'd just like to offer you some suggestions and then for a little bit of break into small groups and just discuss how, how what's your own response in the moment to those suggestions. And there is a teaching in Buddhism that says generosity, giving 
is the antidote to fear. Yeah. It, it, it strikes me as, as, as a wonderfully curious notion. And, and then it asks us to look a little bit deeper at it, you know, that our, uh, our lack of giving, or you, may, you, you might say, our, um, our feelings of not having enough, our feelings of needing more, uh, or, or in, in some ways the consequence of how we're relating to life. And, and I, I realize this can be easily uh, addressed or, or argued against by saying, well, there are times when we do have a scarcity. Uh, but the, what I'm trying to bring up now is not so much the practical scarcities of our life or lackings of our life, but more the, the attitude with which we address our life, you know, uh, and, and then how giving, and then I would add to giving, I would add receiving, you know, because giving and receiving are intertwined, you know. I think probably every one of us has experienced when we did something generous, when we gave something, even if we just wrote someone a card saying thank you or saying that was wonderful, you know, that we receive something, we, we feel in a way uh, nourished by it. And often, in a practical way, it elicits, you know, a, a response of, of uh, gratitude. You know? you know, we write something like, oh, it was lovely spending the evening with you. And the person responds saying, oh, yes, I enjoyed it so much. You know? That giving and receiving are intertwined. Many times people have said to me, uh, oh, yes, I volunteered Zen hospice or somewhere teaching meditation in prisons or taking care of my grandmother or whatever. And yes, I give, but I, I feel like I receive more than I give. Yeah. It's this interplay between giving and receiving. This way, when we contract and separate and become singular, uh, it, it sets within us, it sets a kind of impoverishment. You know? and, and that the giving and the receiving they demonstrate the, the nourishment of interaction. They, de they, they demonstrate what it is to feel in relationship to. And so in a way, this giving and this receiving are the manifestation, the enactment of being in relationship. Like we say, give attention give your attention to this and i think many of us have been obliged at different points in our life to give our attention to something and as we give our attention uh, sometimes especially if, if part of us doesn't want to give our attention part of us is distracted or thinking of something else. Uh, then the, the, it's, it's a demand that we'd rather not have made of us. But then when we do give our attention and we get absorbed in the activity, however it might be, something comes alive. And this is, this is one of the elements, this is part of the yoga 
of meditation, of zazen, you know, of being aware, you know. And, and, and this is how the difference between when we drink something in a casual manner and then we, we drink something with full attention, we give attention to it, you know. You give attention to it and you can taste it. You can taste the flavor. You can taste what it's like to have that liquid in your mouth or going down your throat, you know, or that bite of food, you know. In how we can engage any activity and how giving and receiving enhances the um, the experience of the interaction of the relatedness and so that teaching about giving as the antidote to fear is saying that it's our our fear of lack of relatedness you know this is this is one of the great uh, paradoxes, the great dilemmas of our human condition, that we separate and then we suffer from the separation. That we want to connect and there's something within us, usually some demand that's still pressing itself in its urgency, pressing itself upon us. So as, as we are exploring these different dimensions of giving and receiving, to, to have that as, as one aspect of our being that we're trying to become more insightful about, that we're trying to become skillful with, and we're trying to become patient with. You know? it, it will draw in all the other parameters, you know. It does demand patience. It does demand a diligence. It, it does demand a giving of attention. And it, it blossoms with its own insights. And, and then, so th there's the basic human condition. And then there is the the giving and receiving of our own um, personal life, our own personal history. I read an article in the New York Times this morning, and I, maybe many of you know, but maybe some of you don't know. There, there was a black man accosted in, in Central Park in New York. And he asked someone, uh, he was bird watching and someone's dog was running around making a, a lot of noise. And he asked them, as was the law, to put the dog on a lease. And then it, it created a difficult exchange, which he recorded on his telephone. And, uh, and, and then it, it, it turned quite awkward and unpleasant and, uh, and became a big piece of news here in the States. And then he was interviewed. And in, in many ways, the, the, the video described, it made evident that, that he was not being aggressive in the exchange, but the other person was, was being aggressive. And then he was interviewed. And the interviewer said, because he was black and the other person was white, the interviewer said, was she being racist? Was she, is, is she racist, you know? And he said, in that moment, she displayed characteristics of racism. You know? And I thought, how generous, you know? In that moment, she displayed characteristics. And he said, I would not say, I don't know, because I don't know, I can't say she's racist. I don't know if that's how she behaves all the time. Just in that moment, that's how it was. 
So in a way, what we're seeing in the moment is what we're seeing in the moment. And then it turned out the article was saying that this person is a long-time activist. No? That, that his, his generosity of speech and of attitude and concluding was the product of his activism. This was his skill set that he had developed. Not generalizing. Letting the moment just be itself. No? In that moment, this is how that person was. In, that, in this moment, this is how I am being. No? That kind of generosity. And yet, we have our patterns. And one way we can address our patterns is to think about um, what was it like in our formative years, in the family we grew up in. And, and the article in the New York Times this morning, it's in the, an opinion piece, you could read it if you wish, was written by his sister. And his sister was saying, well, we're both activists because we grew up in an activist family. You know? This is how our father was. Our father took us on protest marches when we were small children. You know? We would sing along on the marches. Uh, they had many fond memories. So you can ask yourself, hmm, How was generosity engaged in my family? I grew up um, Irish Catholic in, in the north of Ireland. And, and every week at school, they would say to us, um, don't forget to bring in a donation for the black babies in Africa. Somehow, the, the poverty of the world was characterized as the black babies in Africa. And, it, and, and I've thought about it, you know, over the years. And, and thought, because I, I, I grew up in a per, relatively poverty-stricken way. But to be reminded of the needs of the world, their, their request of sharing and generosity. Uh, it helps to uh, remind us you know, that, that our needs and others' needs are intertwined. You know? And in some ways, and, and so every, every Friday it was, we would bring in, uh, usually very small amounts of money, uh, pennies actually. Uh, but it maintained uh, something was received. So you can think about that. What way was generosity expressed in your life? Uh, and then you can think about... Um, What stimulates your impulse to be generous? And what stimulates, like, where would you not uh, be generous? Like, personally, I would never uh, make donations to the National Rifle Association, the NRA, you know? I, I don't approve of the principles on which they uh, operate. So that would not be a place where I would be prompted to be generous. Actually, in my own thinking, not donating to them would be virtuous. But that's just me. That's just the way I think. And the values, it's one of my how my values express themselves. And, but to think about that, what prompts you to be generous? 
and what inhibits your generosity. Uh, in San Francisco, we have many homeless people on the streets. And uh, if someone seems intoxicated or high on drugs, I, I wouldn't uh, give them money, you know. I think, well, under those conditions, they probably won't use it in a way helpful to their being. Uh, that's an assumption on my part. It's a judgment on my part. But that's how it is. Uh, so not to say um, that we should be generous in every situation. I think, actually, it's a little bit more complicated, you know. When is it skillful? When's it appropriate? Um, when's it appropriate to not give? And yet, even when we don't materially give, we, we can give in another way. Someone expressing an attempt to alleviate their suffering by being intoxicated, you know? Don't we all attempt to alleviate our suffering? Uh, isn't our society a ferocious and uncaring in certain ways? Mm -hmm. Don't people suffer that lack of generosity? Yeah. So what prompts us to give? What prompts us not to give? When is it um, a conscious choice? Um, and then what happens for us emotionally under those conditions? Right? I think for most of us, this is a territory that we can have, that it's helpful to explore. Yeah. Just what, what is that like? Yeah. And then also to think um, of when you've been the recipient of giving. Yeah. A, maybe in small ways, maybe in large ways, you know? How does that uh, come in into you, your ways of thinking of your history? You know? Like in Zen, we, we, we um, as is East Asian tradition, there, there is acknowledgement of the gifts given by our ancestors, you know? And one thing it's helpful to do is like, well, think about your life. Who has given gifts to you, you know? And especially when we were children, you know? Usually they instilled within us with their behavior certain virtuous attitudes towards how to live. And, and it's also helpful to think, oh, some of these people we know who gave to us, and some of them we don't know, that we have been the recipient of gifts, of generosity, of someone uh, upholding our well-being that we're not even aware of, or we don't remember. That, that way we can be, uh, we, we can bring gratitude into um, our history of our own being. And we can start to think of ourselves as part of a lineage, you know, this I have received, I have become the beneficiary of what's being received, and now I can help pass it on. 
So what word? Uh, this is something you, you'll need to explore, maybe for the rest of your life. What, what is it to, uh, what, what helps you to feel open, connected, engaged, giving and receiving? And then what, what turns that around? You know, what, what prompts you to feel contracted? held back, disconnected, especially in the realm of giving and receiving. Yeah? And then explore for yourself, are there other ways? <laughs> 